Welcome to In 20XX. This series takes the listener, year by year, into the future. If you like emerging tech, ecotech, futurism, skepticism, apocalyptic survival scenarios, and disruptive science, sit back and enjoy short stories that showcase my research into how the future may play out. If you look at Maggie's previous videos, they show a conservative femme nearing middle age, living in New Hope Evangelical Settlement. Her daughter, Amy, 17, smiles at the camera as they prepare food in the town kitchen, scrub water filters, or walk to church in the mornings. Both mother and daughter speak with Southern accents. Amy speaks of the perks of new settlement life, but cautions the viewer that living here is for true believers. Those who want the livelihood but not the church won't be happy here. Maggie appears briefly and never says much, even though it's her tube channel. She always looks like she just finished an appointment at the salon, even though the nearest one is 15 kilometers away. She doesn't look suited for peasant life. An airport or country club would be a better backdrop for her. The earlier videos were all filmed during the day and in public spaces. On Tuesday night, the video that's uploaded to her channel at 3.40 a.m., shows a home kitchen lit only by a little bit of light through the window. The camera turns on as Maggie places her cam ring on a kitchen table and looks down at it. The angle makes her jugular stand out, and because she looks down, she looks sinister. She moves hastily and keeps looking around like someone might barge in on her. Instead of keeping an elegant posture, her shoulders slump and she keeps her hands clasped in front of herself the whole time, something she never does in any other videos. When she speaks, it's with an accent that's never been uttered before. The speaker pulls down each word one by one. Maggie normally speaks evenly. She glares at the cam ring and whispers, I don't know how long I have. I could leave at any moment. I'm in a femme's body. This isn't me. She shakes her head and grunts with frustration. A deep crease cuts through the center of her brow. This happened at the worst time for me, the very worst time. But I said if it ever happened to me, I'd make a video. I'm not prepared. Hold on. She stares at the camera with a blank expression. The crease in her brow disappears. She says, I'm from 2182. I never believed this was real. But I know what I'm supposed to do so you can find me. I know what I'm supposed to say for those who will search for me. I'm a mind displaced. I repeat, I am a mind displaced. I may be the first. I may have seen myself saying this. For several seconds, she stares at the viewer. One of her thumbs rubs hard on the other. Okay, here is what we say. Information tied up with matter can't time travel. It takes too much energy. But information with no mass can go back in time. The first computer to use massless information was biological. Evolution found a way to do it before we did. And that's how I'm here in the 2000s. I'm massless information. Everyone kind of says it the same way. Some videos explain it better than others, my apologies. Most mind displaced happened at the turn of the century. They said it was an experiment gone wrong. At first I thought someone trapped me in a V sandbox, but this body has cravings. This is far earlier than I can cope with. I don't think this body is modded at all. Pure animal. They eat animals here. I almost broke when the daughter said it was 2052. That can't be. She must be mistaken, or maybe I heard her wrong. 
this is scary. Everyone remembers 2052. It should have been changed to year zero. To people of 2052, you are about to lose everything. You are about to lose all of this. You'll be cut off. I need to go back before it happens. Maggie shudders. From another room, Amy calls out, Mom, is that you? Maggie reaches for the ring and the video cuts off. Good evening, America. This is Bill Shannity, and you're watching The Six on VIX News. Well, folks, we're behind schedule for the deadly results of ending the moon cannon program. You heard me right. The end days are late. What do all those elite scientists have to say about that? The bigger problem here, or should I say the real problem here, is can we trust scientists and so-called experts? They say they've done exhaustive data gathering and testing, but they also predicted a climate tipping point as of a month ago. Meanwhile, the weather around the world is following normal patterns. What happened to a time when we could trust science, when it wasn't just a scare tool of the left? Common people, we need to get real here. Regular folks aren't letting experts scare them, and how do I know that? A new sensation is sweeping the nation. People are getting out and enjoying nature. Hiking, mountain biking, you name it, people are giving their ARs a rest and exploring the bounties of nature. For the first time, photos of nature have surpassed cat photos posts. A new craze in town? Good ol' mother nature. Suck on that, scientists. In politics, President Jackson, what have you done? The right is seriously upset and for a good reason. We've all seen the new military complexes built last year. Now Jackson wants to fill them. Hold on to your seats. Not with our nation's best, but with robots. Military personnel are getting let go in all departments. We want to reduce taxes, but this is ridiculous. Jackson's plan is for a 99% automated military. This is so bad, even liberals agree with us that this is bad. Okay, on to economics. Why are major companies reducing their investments in Earth and increasing investment in space? Do they know something we don't know? While some Wall Street analysts are wringing their hands and tearing their hair out, others are looking forward to more industry conducted in space. The resources are there. Plenty of power is there. Fewer complaints about pollution. It may make everything here on Earth even cheaper than it is now, if you can believe that. You thought the five-cent hamburger was cheap? Maybe we'll be getting the two-cent hamburger. Don't forget the side of fries. Remember that baby boom we got a few years ago when online data farming jobs made it easy for moms to earn cash and raise a family? Well, now your local maternity ward has a different tale to tell. The last batch of babies went home and now those hospital cribs are empty. What happened, folks? The nation is facing a baby bust. It's my personal experience that everyone who wanted babies now has two or three, so I'm not worried. Children, we love them, don't get me wrong, but them's enough. The following is a video posted by Vice a lot titled The AI Among Us. A femme wearing business casual says, Did you know that most of the people you see on the news aren't real? Bill Shannity, for example, is computer generated. The real Bill Shannity retired two years ago. His ratings have steadily climbed in the last two years. In case you're wondering, no, I am not AI generated. Meg hosts the first party in her new Alaskan home. In the invite, she named the party a celebration of the great non-event. All year, scientists around the world squawked like spooked chickens, predicting global disaster. Well, no news is good news. In fact, no news is the best news of the century. 
2052 is the year science got it wrong. Thanks a lot, experts, for traumatizing the nation. Glory be, this world is a mess. All her new neighbors fly over in autonocopters. Her house is built on a mountainous slope, but a section of the roof can hold six small aircraft at a time, and most guests ask their copters to go back home and recharge until they're needed later. People scurry through the bitter cold wind from their copters to the rooftop entrance where robots take their coats. They descend silver block stairs to a reception room. A robot orchestra plays. The entire carpet is made of polar bear pelts. The only lighting in the room is tiny points of light sparking on all the walls. The lights are half dimmed and stars twinkle through the mostly transparent ceiling. Two femmes notice they look identical. They walk up to each other and clasp hands as one blushes furiously. They both look like one of the nation's hottest models. Neither of their partners in tow pay the interaction much attention. Once you hear them speak, it's easy to tell the two apart. A series of robot arms along one wall brings trays of drinks. Standalones take the trays and walk around offering drinks to the new arrivals. All of Meg's robots are silent. She'd have it no other way. None of their mechanisms make a sound. They have on average three times the degrees of freedom of that off-the-shelf model, the Luton bot. They move like ballerinas, literally. Ballerinas were data-farmed to train the robot's movements. The faces of the standalones were designed by the lead designer at Pear Computer. To see them is to know excellent design. The designer once said, Robots are like animation. What's the point of making an animation look real? What you want to do is create an animation that causes people to say, yes, that's it. The only child at the party, a serious girl of seven, looks out a telescope window. The large circular window shows a view of a nearby mountain peak as if it's much closer. Lynx, the star of the ultimate makeover challenge, arrives. Senator Turnkey arrives, and soon after, Tom Fan of Sam's Meats comes in from the cold. Tom and Lynx meet for the first time and fall into conversation. Lynx says, I don't think it'll ever get as bad as they say. At worst, Alaska will be the new California of the old Hollywood era. Were you ever in California at that time? Tom says, I was in Vietnam. Lynx says, well, I was a kid then. It was like a dream back then. You don't know what you got until you lose it. He says, Hollywood made TV shows. When everyone has arrived, Meg raises a glass and announces, Well, peeps, before we go to the dining room, who wants to see my escape rocket? A femme gasps and says, What's that? The femme next to her says, She has a rocket in this house that can take her to space. Everyone follows Meg. The first femme says, I can't compete. I'm not going to try to be rich anymore. What's the point? I'll never have my own rocket. 20 people comfortably fit in an elevator that takes them to a catwalk where they crane their necks to look up the side of a rocket inside a circular room that goes up at least 10 stories. Meg says, Cute little thing, isn't it? People laugh. Meg says, It's a single-stage fusion rocket plane, and it's all set to take me to my condo in space. In the back of the group, Tom leans toward Lynx and says, Still wondering what it looks like to be a trillionaire? A man near Meg says, When do we go for a spin? Without hesitating, Meg says, Oh, I hope I never need to use it. This is my little life raft.
A huge faith revival is taking place, not only in the five evangelical states, but in pockets all over the nation. Faith is at an all-time high. People who've never stepped into churches start attending wearing dresses for femmes and ties for males. Door-to-door -door evangelicals who were used to rejection feel confused and blessed when those who answer the doors show desire to learn about the promise of a safe future. Lifelong atheists suddenly find Jesus. Five times more people migrate to the evangelical states than any other category of migrant. Vaughn, now 16, steps off a bus in New Hope. He carries a half-empty backpack over his scrawny shoulder. His clothes are mismatched sizes and styles. Others on the bus breathe easier now that they can get away from his odor. The people getting off the bus line up in front of a tall man dressed like a job site foreman whose name is Henry. Henry watches his AR as each person gives him their name. Their names appear on his AR spreadsheet followed by the time and today's date. He looks each new arrival over with a critical gaze which confuses some of them. They were expecting a full-on loving welcome. Vaughn steps up and says, Vaughn Russo. He gazes happily at the cross hanging on Henry's chest. He cherishes his Bible by clutching it to his side. Henry's frown turns to a broad grin. He points Vaughn to the dining hall and pats him on the back as the youth heads up the hill. Henry walks to the school and gets his daughter, Sally, who's now 15. They walk back together between new, hand-built houses. Henry says, Are you looking forward to graduating? She says, I guess. I like school. I wish I could stay in school. He says, Learning can become a vice. She says, Why'd we have to move? He says, The prophet sent me here to improve this town's attitude. She says, What do you mean? He says, well, a lot of people just want the work and housing we offer, and they don't want the Jesus part. They come here reluctant to go to church. It's like a kid who eats the mac and cheese but won't eat his veggies. She says, why is that bad? He says, secularism creeps into a society. It looks and feels good, but it eats away at a town like a cancer. On one side of the road they walk on, what looks like a barn houses the fungi food brewery. On the other side, a large green tank feeds salt water through filters to a second tank. She says, everyone has to go to church or they won't get a membership card and they can't work. He says, yes, but there are rumors of secret meetings and people breaking through the internet firewall. Like the Bastion family, I've already told you not to hang out with their kids. Yes, they do follow the rules, but there are rumors. She says, Mark Bastion draws pictures of cyborgs in class. He says, See, children are both the bellwether and the point of the spear of a secular attack. She says, Huh? He says, The children give away what the family is really like, and they also infect other children with secular attitudes. Where'd Mark ever get ideas about cyborgs? Not in church. She says, I don't know. He says, Would you know what a cyborg is, if not for Mark? She says, I don't know. They walk past the single femmes' houses. Two middle-aged femmes pull weeds in a front yard. A door opens and a tall femme steps out. Henry and she make eye contact. The connection is mutual and immediate. They look made for each other after all. Both are tall and athletic. Both have strong jawlines and square cheeks. Henry and Sally keep walking. The femme smiles lightly and slowly nods. 
Henry nods back at her with wide eyes. Sally stares at the femme and says, Who's that, Dad? Henry sits in a meeting with the pastor and two other town leaders. He says, Other settlements have great fervor. You want people on fire for the Lord. We don't have that here. A man with naturally occurring baldness says, Attendance is good. We have devotional clubs and social events that all get good numbers. Henry says, There's a crisis. I have here a list of ten individuals, four of which belong to one family who don't use Brethren Link, which probably means they use the dark web. A wrinkled man rears his head back and says, Why would they do that? Henry says, Well, if they do, it's at least to access a secular TV series they don't want to leave behind. But they could also use the dark web to watch porn or even enroll their kids in science classes. The wrinkled man looks at the others and says, They'd do that here? Henry raises his brows and nods slowly. He says, The Bastion family are an odd bunch. They also never use Brethren Link. They also draw a lot more electricity than anyone else. Like 20 times more. Bald Guy says, What for? Henry shrugs. He says, Faith marathons are a good way of sifting out who the lackluster believers are. On Sunday morning, Henry and Sally walk to church. They see others leave houses and walk, all dressed in Sunday best. Sally says, Look, Dad, a blimp. Henry says, Yes, there it goes. She says, Can we go up in a blimp sometime? He says, It's always wiser to keep your feet on the ground. She rolls her eyes but doesn't protest. Gravel crunches behind them, and then the new femme appears, walking on Sally's left side. Henry walks on Sally's right side. Both Henry and Sally look at the femme, surprised. The femme calmly smiles and says, Mind if I walk with you? I'm a vet. Sally says, You're as tall as my dad. Henry says, Hello, Yvette. I'm Henry, and this is Sally. Where are you from? Yvette says, Idaho. My church there raised funds to bus a group of us to new settlements. Henry nods approvingly. She sure does have a handsome face. She also lacks some of the tags of urban sin newcomers often bring with them like face tattoos, colored hair, and those bone mounts. Sally says, We just moved here too. Yvette says, Oh really? I had the impression you lived here a long time. In Florida, the prophet lounges on his couch that once belonged in a Dutch palace. His estate, with lots of decorative tile and high, arching ceilings, used to be a resort. As he wears frosted glasses, a virtual menu shows him several video callers waiting. He airtaps the one who made the largest donation. On his website, it says that if you donate any amount, you'll receive a response from the prophet. But any payments under 100 get responses from his AI doppelganger. He's heard the doppelganger does a convincing job. He's never looked into it. The visitor he chose gave 300, um, better than 100, but still not worth too much effort. A femme wearing a pearl necklace appears and says, Hello, Mr. Prophet. The Prophet says, Would you like me to pray for you or answer any questions about your future? She says, Can I do both? He says, I recommend you do one. She says, Future telling? He says, 
A relative will have some good news for you. She looks at him but says nothing. He adds, It could be money. She says, I'm an orphan. Irritation pinches his chest, but he makes sure to gaze at her as if she's the most wonderful thing he's ever seen. Starting slowly, he says, The Lord works in mysterious ways, am I right? She melts and says, So true. Thank you, prophet. His Sunday sermon is coming up. He takes two more collars, then walks over to a wardrobe and puts on a purple robe. His estate includes a rustic chapel where club guests used to get married. He heads there to broadcast. Henry, Sally, and Yvette sit on a middle pew in McCarthy Chapel as people come in and find places to sit. Henry asks Yvette, Did you grow up in Idaho? She nods and raises one brow, sitting up straight with plenty of air between her back and the backrest. Gloria plays the organ. Its flat, plastic keyboard rests on a tabletop, but the house speakers make it sound like a cathedral organ. Sally jumps up and says, Let me introduce Yvette to everyone. Henry turns to the side, starting to shake his head. Yvette raises a hand and says, Oh, sure, I'd love that. She stands and lets Sally lead her to the choir. Sally says, Everybody, this is Yvette. Yvette, this is Bridget, Elizabeth, Susanna, Rebecca, Sarah, George, John, Martha, Alice, Mary, Anne, Wilmot, Margaret, Samuel. Oh, and that's unlucky Giles. Margaret says, Don't call him that. Giles says, No, call me that. Go ahead and call me unlucky Giles. Yvette says, Why unlucky? He scrunches up his wrinkled face and says, Because no matter what happens, I get the worst of it. Margaret socks his shoulder. Yvette laughs along with him. Sally and Yvette return to their seats. When Sally gets up to get a Kool-Aid from the snack table, Yvette says to Henry, I'll never remember all those names. Henry smiles and says, I'm still trying to remember everyone's names. I don't know how she does it. The front screen, as wide as the stage, comes to life. It shows a quaint, adobe-style chapel interior. People in the audience clap, including Yvette. She leans over slightly and whispers, I hoped the prophet broadcasts to this church. Henry feels warm all over. He grins and turns his head to the front. Sally hurries back to take her seat. In the stream, the prophet walks up to the podium. He looks preoccupied. Gloria stops playing the organ. The prophet says, We're all in a predicament. We all must live in the devil's world, and yet we must stay faithful to Jesus and make it to heaven. We must walk on the devil's land and breathe his air. Even in the settlements, we aren't safe from the mind control Satan exerts upon us on a daily basis. Yes, I said, daily basis. Satan uses our best intentions to lure us away from the Lord. The malaria and smallpox outbreaks were sent by Satan to pressure concerned family members to take their ken to secular hospitals. So, if you think Satan lures people with lust, greed, and ill wishes alone, you're mistaken. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Are you taking medication of any kind? If you are, you're selling your faith to Satan. Don't say you put your faith in Jesus if your actions say you put your faith in science. God uses sickness to bring you back to heaven. Why fight that? Go ahead and ask God for relief from pain, but understand that pain often means God is picking you for his kingdom. Jesus is coming back in our lifetime as he promised in the Bible. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Mark 13, 30. Do you hear me, brothers and sisters? 
If you're suffering, it's Satan making you suffer, but fortify your faith because you will not need to wait long to find eternal happiness, eternal love, and eternal freedom from suffering or discomfort. In our lifetime, we'll see science die and God's people return to His kingdom. We all like our VR and AR, but you better know they come from Satan. This is Satan's world and science was crafted by Satan to seduce you away from Jesus. You've outsmarted him yesterday, but today he's trying to think of new ways to trick you into abandoning your faith. Scaring you with loud thunder is his latest trickery. With science, Satan gives you ACs and electric lights. We're stuck in his world, so to some extent we must use his gifts of seduction. But we should always fear science. The Bible warns us against science. At the very beginning, Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge. What is that tree of knowledge? That tree is science. Science is designed to rob you of your faith. The snake promised that you shall be like God, and that's the very same promise science makes. That's why I'm happy to say that no children in God's states will seek education past the sixth grade. The congregation claps. Confused, Sally claps. The prophet continues. Satan loves for you to grow hungry for education. That's his most sinister bait and switch to date. He's learned he can't scare God's people. Oh no, brothers and sisters, we're stronger than that. There's been some concern that faith in the new settlements has gotten watered down. Some folk are happy to be faithful only to the point where they get their church membership card. Satan can smell that and he's been coming around more often. As a community, we need to make our faith so strong that Satan will fear our settlements and stay away. This is Satan's world. He tries to weaken our faith by sending storms. We need to show Satan we're not afraid for Jesus will be right next to us the entire time. Whenever a storm comes, go outside. This world is all an illusion. There are no half measures with faith. We must show our faith and stand out in the storm and pray, Satan, in the name of Jesus, be gone from my people. When Satan attacks, we hold a faith celebration. We need to show him. His storms don't scare away our faith. They give us cause to hold closer to our faith. I want you to walk toward fear. Don't hide from it. When there's a storm, take your family outside and stand the storm down. Say, Satan, I recognize thee. In the name of Jesus, be gone. The prophet stops with his arms outstretched, fists clenched. People in the congregation say, Amen, and praise Jesus. Tears roll down Yvette's cheeks. Henry glances back at the Bastion family and with satisfaction notices that they all look affronted and deeply displeased. Tanner looks like she's around 27 years old. Her long brown hair looks even younger. Each morning she stares in the mirror and reminds herself that she's 78. Her houseboat rocks gently as she pours a cup of mush calf and takes it to her favorite patio chair on the dock shaded under trees. Many birds visit the feeders in the morning, but none come. After 55, Tanner stopped celebrating her birthday. But after her second youth, she privately pays close attention to her date of birth again. Should the world know about this special gift? She'd love to gift the world with the secret inside her, but the mega-rich scare her. She's known notable individuals who've become non-persons because they got in the way of what a rich person wanted. Some would call her rich. Sure, Benny always provided and not everyone has several houses to switch between, but she's nothing like the super rich. 
they make vampires seem silly by comparison. The one time she felt a chill to the bone that haunts her for days followed an evening with one of the world's richest people. With most cancers cured, with most diseases cured, does femkind need a second youth? Did she need a second youth? She already lived a good life, a complete life. She took care of her husband to his last day. She raised two great kids. One was troubled, but he cared for people. He cared for her. Who knows? Maybe tomorrow she'll explode into clumps of bloody flesh. If she's still alive and youthful ten years from now, she can tell the world then. Humes can wait another ten years. Well, for certain, she doesn't feel that she owes it to Femkind to share this secret, this lab experiment that she escaped with when she escaped that hospice center. And now this whole business of creating a new identity doesn't thrill her. She tried plastic surgery to change her face, but her original features insisted on growing back, which is bittersweet because she wants to have her face. She likes it much more than the other one, but she fears getting noticed. She wears silver veils in public. Her doctor, who knows her as Jane Doe, has stabilized her pain management, eliminating most of the pain and helping her get off heroin. What a battle, going through withdrawal, living with the pain full on and putting up with side effects. Wanting to live a dream she had before she married Benny, she buys a two-story houseboat in Sausalito. California has changed immensely. Hollywood is no more. Industry heavy hitters left. Many of the beaches don't feel the same with giant pipes crossing them on their way into the water. People her age, she's 78 after all, hang on to the best properties. Salty winds, desert heat, and wear and tear have deteriorated the rest. But in Sausalito, kids in their 20s buy and repair houseboats. Her neighbors, with innocent friendliness, treat her as a peer. They're too young to remember when she was a tennis star. She enjoys chatting on docks that creak and sway. Few here work. A lot of her neighbors scored small fortunes in high-tech jobs right before automation pushed them out. The cost of living is so low they can afford to retire in their 20s. She doesn't go downtown much. The last time she did a few senior citizens freaked out. Did you know you look so much like Tanner Clemens? Tanner braced herself and replied, Who's that? Oh, she's a great tennis star from the 90s. Look her up. Are you sure she isn't your mother? Tanner shook her head, smiled, and backed away. No, Tanner doesn't look her younger self up. She avoids history and the news altogether. Without fully realizing it, she wants to pretend that she's living in the 90s again like the time when she was an adult but hadn't met Benny and hadn't had children yet. The somewhat isolated boathouse community provides a time bubble for her. Had paying attention to current affairs ever given her much power to do anything about anything? The world won't go to hell if she chooses not to participate. She rarely wears her glasses, which her neighbors think is radical and a sign of being a true artist. When anyone wants to talk about any kind of current event, she says, I don't do the news and she turns around and walks off. The marina people love it. Her approach to life is foreign without being from another country. What touched her mind to make her odd in such an unobvious way? She must be gifted. One neighbor who used to work on cruise ships tells her, do you make any art? Do you make any kind of craft item? Because if you do, I'll buy it whatever it is. The couple that lives in a single-story boat next to hers invites her to a bar B quay on their rooftop balcony. Their open grill burns methane so it doesn't pollute the air. Sambo, the male who squints when he smiles, says, Tammy, 
that's the name Tanner goes by now. Tammy, I think I know what it is. You have an old soul. Gretchen, his partner, says, You said that to what's-her-name? He says, What? Gretchen says, Remember, at the loft party last week? Is that like code for I think you're hot? He looks down and says, Of course not. All three are kind of tipsy, so Tanner just waits for the subject to change. Even if she tries to act like the currently young generation, she'll come off as original and nonconformist. When mourners of the earth parade down the streets and half the boat owners leave overnight, Tanner still tunes out all current affairs. The world has always been just about to end. If the world weren't about to end, what would people do? She takes her kayak out on the water every day. Being out on the water is a lot like training on the court. She thinks better in open spaces. When she went to the hospital, she checked in under a different identity and never gave her real age or her condition. But what will happen? How long will she stay young? Will she age all over again? She used to be an open person, willing to share her true feelings with almost everyone. But now she feels a distance between herself and others, even between her and her daughter. What is extended life if she must live it like a ghost? She steps out of her living room onto the gangway that faces the bay, where her kayak is tied. The gangway only extends a meter. With athletic ease, she gets into her kayak, unties it, and pushes off with the oar. The sunlight reflects off the water a good distance from her instead of dancing around her and blinding her like it does midday. There are so few boats on the water. It's kind of strange that boat traffic has been absent for at least a month. It reminds her of COVID when public spaces became ghost towns. There are still lots of drone blimps in the sky. One day she counted a hundred blimps. She could do that again today, but needless to say, doing it once was enough. Because there are no other boats, she paddles further out. Boats can be scary. A yacht bigger than a city bus can sneak up on her, pass her, and leave her rocking in its wake. She always worries a large boat won't see her, what is that? A chill passes over her. That has never happened before. Is fall arriving early? Brrr, that breeze is cold. Happening to look up, she sees something no one has ever seen before. The westmost blimps like white bubbles move in unison toward her. As they move, blimps in front of them also start moving. The western sky grows dark and a cold wind blows her further from her home. Because the surface of the water carries sound, she can hear shouting even though she's far out. Tiny figures run along a tiny road. She paddles fiercely for her house. Her attention snaps into focus. She must get off the water. Where many would panic, she decides quickly and puts all her effort into what must be done. The cold air makes the skin on her face feel stretched. Above, the blimps have left the sky as dark clouds pass over like a giant concrete shelf. Daylight drops into darkness. Thunder cracks and rumbles. Large drops strike her and her kayak. They hurt, especially the drops that hit the top of her head. Each gust of wind pushes her harder than the last. The weirdest sound comes at her from up and down the coast, like a raspy tearing, crashing, screeching, and slapping. Buckets of water pour drop down on her at high speeds. The water around her sputters and appears to boil. Her home is hardly visible through the sheets of rain. Her old self, the warrior on the court, takes the paddle, 
and she doubles her paddling speed. Her destination inches closer. A light blinds her, and thunder goes off right next to her, and she can feel the sound wave. For a harrowing ten minutes, she paddles back to her home. Some of the houseboats appear through the torrent. They rise and then plunge back into the water. When her house hits the water, she leans out and grabs the gangway, losing the kayak as she pulls herself on board and hangs onto the bucking platform. Her belongings crash inside. Water sloshes back and forth on the floor. A cooking pot bounces through the open door, hits her shoulder, and falls into the water. As she gets inside on all fours, her house rises and rises. She flies backward and hits the ceiling when the house jerks to a stop. Dock planks screech. She hits the floor and rolls forward as the house rises again like a plane taking off. Her belongings bruise and cut her. The house flips vertically, throwing her against her cast-iron methane fireplace where she hits her head. Along with other boathouses, cars, and parts of buildings, her house rises over the land and flies north and gradually west. It flies over the ocean, spinning, tumbling. A kilometer off the coast, the storm casts her house to the waters. Tanner is unconscious when the impact breaks the house into thousands of pieces. She sinks into the ocean with a million other objects. Her lungs fill with water. She spasms for a minute, then stops all movement. As she sinks deeper and deeper, whatever gave youth back to her can't save her now. Vix News announces the approach of Hurricane Dewey. In the morning, Henry waits at the school, and when all the kids are there, he tells them school won't be held today. He has a special task for them. The kids roam throughout the town, telling people who walk to work that there will be no work today. Today is a faith celebration. Spread the word as the skies darken and wind gusts blow through. Within an hour, Almost all the townspeople stand outside their homes wearing their Sunday best. They group in their yards with their families or with their Bible study groups if they're single. Hair blows into Femme's eyes. Their dresses twist around their legs. The tops of trees wave in sawtooth patterns. A rope slaps a flagpole. Leaves skip across the ground. Many have hymnals and sing. Yvette joins Henry and Sally. Sally spins around until Henry tells her to calm down. The skies turn from concrete color to slate color. It seems night will come before the afternoon. The stronger the wind blows, the harder people pray. They clap their hands together and shake them at the sky. They hold their palms out and up and chant, Praise Jesus, Almighty God. Though I walk through the valley of darkness, I will fear no evil. You can see it on their faces. Not a lackluster faith, but a faith to rival all others. The storm helps them achieve a deeper connection. Many feel a union with Jesus much stronger than they dreamed possible. Vaughn, with four other boys outside youth housing, holds his Bible in the air and shakes it at Satan. Be gone, vile spinner of lies. Be gone, evil one. Go back to hell where you belong. You think you can taunt me for lack of faith? You have no clue. We'll show you that this illusion you've conjured doesn't reach our souls, for we're under the protection of the Almighty. The boys standing around Vaughn are impressed. Vaughn has a gift. This dude could be a preacher someday. Henry asks Yvette to watch over Sally, and he jogs through the streets mentally taking a census. Everyone who sees him waves and throws kisses. They shout, Praise be, Brother Henry! 
These are his people. The wind pushes him one way, then the other. He almost falls many times. Long cracks of light appear and disappear the next instant. A fat drop of rain hits his face. Sure enough, sure enough, the Bastion family are not in their yard. They're not in their neighbor's yard. They're nowhere to be seen. Uh, the nerve of them to wait out this most important day. As a rule, he avoids showing anger, but he stands at the edge of their yard and stares at their windows. He hopes to high heaven that they see him and that their cheeks burn with shame. He mutters, I found you out. Maggie and Amy stand in their yard. The wind throws branches at them. A glass windowpane breaks with a crash. The twisted cone of a tornado passes just outside town. Amy holds her hymnal close to her chest and trembles as she sings. Maggie looks out at the town as if none of this matters. She can sing along with Amy without looking at the words. Amy's hair seems possessed, whipping around nonstop. Maggie holds her head back and doesn't flinch. Items of all sorts fly past overhead. Both Maggie and Amy look up in time to see a person fly over them. The next day, everyone walks around picking up garbage and noticing what will need to be repaired. Damage is minimal. The air smells fresh and the light in the sky feels gentle. Sally runs ahead of Henry as he walks through a field, finding random items to put in a plastic bag. Drone blimps hang in the sky, a sight he associates with infidel states. Sally's laughter calms Henry. One of the orphan boys runs toward them, bounding through the tall grass like a deer. He yells, Henry, Henry. Henry turns and waits. When the boy reaches him, he says, the pastor wants you to see something at the Bastion house. Henry calls out, let's go, Sally. The town leaders stand on the bastion porch, just outside the open door. When the pastor sees Henry, he waves Henry over. Sally stays at Henry's side. The men on the porch grimly smile at Henry as he gets closer. The pastor says, We suspended their church cards for a year. A van came and got them this morning. Henry thinks to himself, That didn't take long. But with no church card, they can't work here or shop at any of the stores. Henry nods approval. The bald man says, You gotta see this. You won't believe it unless you see it. He gestures through the door. Henry says, What is it? Bald guy says, Have a look inside. Henry climbs the steps as the men make room for him. When Sally starts to follow, Henry says, Stay there, Sally. The pastor says, It's all right for her to see. Inside, dirt piles as high as Henry is tall fill the living room. Any more dirt would fall over the windows. He says, What madness is this? Bald guy says, The rest of the rooms are like that too. There's a tunnel right through the kitchen floor. Sally waits, poised to join her father and have a look herself. For a planning committee, 15 people sit in a circle on folding chairs on the church stage. Among them, the pastor says, I'm sure you've noticed a missing member in our beloved congregation. 
During the faith celebration, the Lord so loved the power of this individual's faith, the Lord Jesus took the young Von Russo to heaven. Maggie raises her hand. The pastor says, Yes, Maggie? She says, I saw him. My daughter and I saw him go up to heaven. Amy's eyes lock on her mother as she nods in agreement. The muscles on her neck flex. Others sitting in the pews crease their eyebrows and avoid looking at each other. Carefully, the pastor says, Amen. Praise be. Maggie watches the others with a hint of a smile on her lips. The next morning, a VIX news weatherman shows the hurricane that'll reach land by midday. At the same time, Henry gets a call from the pastor to plan for another faith celebration. Henry grinds his teeth. This is too soon after the last one. It's only been a week. They can't go through that again. Sally has nightmares now and can't fall back to sleep. In the kitchen, Sally makes a sandwich for her lunch. Henry says, You won't need a lunch today. She freezes and her eyes grow wide. Outside the school, feeling like someone else is controlling him, Henry instructs the children to notify everyone. This time, all the townspeople gather outside the church. 200 people seem like a lot when they come together in a group. Yvette is already there when Henry and Sally arrive. She has bags under her eyes and jerks when she moves. The skies are still blue, partly cloudy. This time, people bring sacks of food and drink. Many wear winter coast, especially the elderly. Everyone faces away from the church as they sing and pray as if the church is what needs protecting from the illusion Satan is about to send their way. An hour passes and people are starting to smile more. They continue to worship but also chat a little, not too much. Children wiggle with boredom. Those on the east side see it coming, a wall of gray that eats the planet as it draws near. A gust of wind knocks some people down as it passes over them. It smells like the sea. Loose debris rises from the fields and spins around in mad circles. The pastor shouts, Satan is here! But the wind blows his words away. As the towering gray wall advances, it appears to also move horizontally. It flows south like a river on its side. People tremble and hold their arms tight to their chests as they sing from their hymnals. Henry wonders if he saw any birds this morning. The storm seems to come in faster the closer it gets. A femme shrieks. Sally drops her hymnal and clings to Henry. He pushes her away and shouts, Do like me! He lifts his arms to the sky and shouts, Take me, Lord! Lord, take me! Sally falls, struggles to her feet, and does the same. Then Yvette follows suit and the others. He squeezes his eyes tight. He can hear Sally crying, Take me, Lord! Oh, Lord, take me! A torrent of heavy hoofs thunder past. He opens his eyes in time to see a dozen elk gallop past. Darkness like night passes over them. The wind pushes him back, off his feet. Those around him rise into the air. The church spins away and the ground drops away. Where's Sally? He sees four others spinning, rising higher and higher. His heart pounds so hard it feels like it's going to break. It wasn't supposed to go like this. No, this can't be how it ends. Thank you for listening. Please take the time to rate, review, and subscribe so that more future-minded people can find this show.
My landing page is in 20xx.com. There, you can find the companion website to this podcast that includes an illustrated timeline and glossary.